Right Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. The coronavirus pandemic is caused by a virus and a disease that is brand new, meaning our understanding of how it spreads, what its effects are, and what it will take to eventually contain it is constantly evolving. It also means that the best information we have available sometimes proves to be wrong or at least incomplete at some time in the future. We are still unsure of so many things related to this pandemic. Here to talk about how our understanding of the new coronavirus is changing and shifting over time and how that should affect our reaction to it is Dr. Paul Kilgore. He is the director of research at the Wayne State University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Dr. Kilgore, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you very much, Stephen. Great to be here. Thank you. Yes. So I, I want to start with you talking about the kind of challenge something like COVID-19 poses to us in a scientific sense, this idea of trying to understand a virus and a disease that are both brand new to human existence. What does that, what does that ask of our scientific community first? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really important topic. Stephen. And there's really a couple of considerations. One is that in order to move the field fast, uh, forward fast, as quickly as possible and get results that people can really use, it really requires what I would call unprecedented collaboration among groups, both locally, but also internationally, uh, from one country to another. And that means sharing virus samples. Uh, it means sharing data and results it means making sure that the results are accurate, well-analyzed, and then figuring out the interpretation of those results so people can look to the next step in the research and make sure that they can understand what the next questions are going to be in the field. And, and let's talk about COVID-19 in particular, which caught the world by surprise. What is, what is different about this particular disease that has us, I guess, a little scrambled in the way that, that we are trying to meet it and, and a little more ineffective than we are with other kinds of diseases that, that pop up in the world. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a, a good comparison. Uh, over many, many years, we've been tracking influenza epidemics and pandemics. And one of the things that we know about influenza is that it has a fairly predictable pattern. Mm-hmm. So it begins in October, November each year, and we peak starting around December, January into February, and then it declines over time. And that peak happens year after year. And so that's why we vaccinate seasonally or every year for influenza. In contrast, COVID-19 or the SARS coronavirus 2 is what I would describe as kind of a tricky virus. And what I mean by that is that what we've seen with COVID-19 so far is that it can present in a much different way than typical influenza. It also presents in a different way than what we saw with the first SARS coronavirus back in 2003 and 4 in Canada and China and some other countries. And one of the ways that's kind of unique uh, in the presentation of COVID-19 that we're seeing is that in different age groups, it can present differently. In people with different underlying medical conditions, it can present differently. Even in children, it can present differently. 
uh, that what we've seen with other viral infections, even previous coronavirus infections that had been commonly circulating for many, many years in communities around the world. So it's that difference in clinical presentation and severity in some cases that makes this a really different disease. And then the last thing I'll mention is we know from the epidemiologic studies that COVID-19 or the SARS coronavirus is transmitting more easily from one person to another compared with influenza virus. So that transmissibility factor is really key when we talk about trying to control the epidemic and pandemic. So how fast is our understanding of COVID-19 changing? I, I know that, that there are scientists all over the world working on coming up with ways to fight it and coming up with a vaccine, but it does seem like the knowledge gap uh, between what we know now and what we need to know in order to get to a better state is still quite large. Uh, how often are we are we seeing scientists just kind of have to start again from the beginning or from a from an earlier point in order to adapt to things that that they didn't know or just have just discovered about COVID? Mm-hmm. So one of my key tenets in doing research uh, is really to never assume anything. Hmm. And with COVID-19, we definitely cannot assume anything. One of the things that we're seeing is results coming in literally hour by hour from around the world. And one of the challenges for researchers is tracking this. So I use several different uh, sources to track updates and changes. Uh, but literally, I have to keep up every day to see where the new results are coming in from and look at them critically so we can interpret the data and see what we need to do next and what's good, what's not, not good, what's working, what's not working, and really ferret out all the information from around the world. And it's incredible, the pace. I've never seen an accumulation of data and information and publications on any one disease this quickly in my lifetime. It's really, it's dizzying and it's unprecedented, really. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dr. Paul Kilgore. He's an associate professor and director of research at the Wayne State University College of Pharmy, Pharmacy and Health Sciences. We're talking about COVID-19 and the way in which it is challenging us to figure out how it works, what its effects are, and then to figure out how to contend with it, at least how to contend with it better than we have so far. How often is our understanding of COVID-19 changing in a scientific sense? And what does that mean for us as we continue to live in virtual lockdowns and stay at home and social distancing orders? Uh, how should we be responding to the things that scientists are learning about the coronavirus? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us about things that uh, you think about when you think about what uh, this virus is, how it works, and what it's doing. Uh, give us a call and tell us how much attention you're paying to what scientists are saying and are learning about COVID-19. Does it make you feel more secure to know that uh, scientists are changing their understanding of this pretty frequently? Or does that make you more frightened about the possibility of this being something different than what it is 
right now. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Dr. Kilgore, before we get to listeners, I, I want to talk about how close we are to finding treatments for COVID-19, first of all, but then also how close we are to finding a vaccine. <clears throat> I feel like I, I see a lot of information, conflicting information out there about both of those things. Uh, and I think our listeners probably do too. There's a lot of, there's a lot of opinion about how fast all of these things can happen. And and of course, uh, we can't bargain with science. Science has has control of this in a way uh, that I think we're not used to. So so first, talk about how close we are to making this less lethal than it is, and then talk about how close we are to uh, a vaccine that would prevent us from getting it at all. Mm-hmm. So on the treatment front. Stephen, there are a number of drugs being evaluated. And in the news, you've heard of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I think you've heard of remdesivir. And there's also a couple other antiviral drugs that are really kind of upfront right now. And the way that we track these in the trials is by looking at different uh, clinical trial registries, one of which is clinicaltrials.gov, which is open to the public and anyone can go there. Uh, that's operated by uh, the U.S. Uh, Government And also there's a WHO clinical trial site where you can go and see what people are doing around the world, actually. On the treatment front, also, there are a number of approaches that are looking at what I would call repurposing existing drugs. So these are drugs that have been around for a while, and they're being evaluated to see if they can both reduce mortality and or shorten duration of illness. And the other outcome we look at is decreasing severity of disease. Uh, literally yesterday, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, there have been reports out. One of the reports I'll just highlight is looking at hydroxychloroquine. Hmm. And this is a relatively limited study. And in the study that they published, um, it's looking at about 1,400 patients. And they looked at treatment of the patients with COVID-19 using hydroxychloroquine. And these were patients that were admitted to the hospital, and the hydroxychloroquine didn't, in their data analysis, did not show either greatly lowered or greatly increased uh, deaths associated with treatment. So one of the things that this trial and this study highlights is that we're really waiting for future clinical trials that compare hydroxychloroquine to no treatment, but also evaluated in what we call a randomized controlled trial design. So that's where we blind the study and one group gets the drug uh, or and one group gets a placebo and we compare the groups. Remdesivir um, was reported, results were reported for this drug uh, last week and the week before, and it does seem to show some promise in reducing the disease severity and duration of illness. So that's promising as well. Um, there's more trial data expected on that as well. On the vaccine front, uh, the big news, I think, uh, worth noting is that the vaccine 
race is on. It's flat out, and there are companies that are competing in a huge way to make sure they advance the trials for these vaccines as quickly as possible. One company that uh, released results and, and their plan going forward is Moderna. This is an mRNA-based vaccine where we vaccinate individuals and then we provide them with the code, the genetic recipe, in order to produce that spike protein, which is so important to get good immunity to the virus um, when we're exposed. Hmm. The, the other vaccine that's kind of uh, in the lead right now is a vaccine produced by the Oxford University Clinical Trials Group, and uh, this is with the Jenner Institute in the United Kingdom. They have an advantage in the sense that they started working on this actually a few years ago, and one of the assets that they have at Oxford in their unit is what we call a pilot plant for production of vaccines that are used in a clinical trial. So they're a bit ahead of the game, um, but the other large companies that are working on these include Pfizer, Johnson Johnson, Sanofi, and there's partnerships with other manufacturers like GSK and smaller biotech companies in Germany. So there's a lot going on. There's over 20 candidates right now, and that does not include even the candidates that are being evaluated in China. Mm. So there's a lot of work going on there, and so I'm very excited about that, actually. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome Thank to the show. You. So we had a big crisis about six months ago, and, I mean, legislation, party stores, everybody was involved in the vaping issue. Uh, there was a kid over in Gross Point that had to have a double, double lung transplant, otherwise totally healthy individual. And this crisis seems to have just gone away, and I, I, I don't believe that. And I, I have two questions. Is there any correlation between these two, and did this really just go away? Because when I left work a month ago, my coworkers were vaping just like they always had. Uh, that's an interesting, it's an interesting question, John, and it's not something I've thought of, whether there's a relationship between vaping and the lung problems that people were having because of that and uh, the things that we're seeing now with people having real trouble with coronavirus that is that is lung related that's a great uh, it's an interesting connection uh, we got to be careful of course about making assumptions as dr kilgore says but uh, dr kilgore address address what john's talking about here mhm so there has been a little bit of discussion and research around vaping and the risk of COVID-19. And one of the recommendations now is that people should avoid vaping in order to reduce their risk of COVID-19. So that kind of makes sense when you think about the fact that when you're vaping, you're actually inhaling uh, a number of constituents, a number of components in the vaping aerosolization uh, compounds and these compounds, we don't know the full effect of actually on the human body. That's an ongoing area of research. But when we inhale the vaping uh, vapors, it really could be challenging for setting up our lungs for an infection with COVID-19. One of the things that we know from smoking is that it damages airways, the upper airways, and the lower airways in the lung. Vaping can also do that depending on how much you're vaping and where it's going and how deeply you inhale. I think the safest thing by far and away is to avoid and stop vaping and really help reduce the risk of COVID-19 because 
One thing we do know about COVID-19 is that any age group can become infected. Any age group can become sick. And we actually have, over the past several weeks, seen a number of cases in younger adults who you would think might be healthy and protected, but in fact, they do get COVID-19. Mm. You know, uh, the, the this idea of vaping being connected somehow to, to, to COVID-19 vulnerability, walk us through just a little bit of how you how you figure something like that out you know in the middle of a pandemic like this i mean it, that that again is not something i've heard or seen but it sounds to me like the scientific community has already thought about that and is 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 looking into it how does how does that come together so there's a couple of ways we could look at that from a research standpoint the easiest way is an epidemiologic study design called the case control study and we start with the cases. We start with COVID-19 cases. And then we have a group of controls that are not experiencing the disease. And we look at the exposures. And in this case, we're talking about the exposure of vaping. And so we collect information on the cases and ask them, did you vape? And how long did you vape? And how much? How frequently? And we ask those same questions to the control group. And then we can analyze those two groups and come up with what we call an odds ratio. That's the odds of disease given that exposure of vaping. And we can come up with a risk estimate based on those exposures and the analysis that we get from the case control study. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, again, thanks very much for the call and the questions. Let's go to Sally in Bloomfield Hills. Sally, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi. Uh-huh. I'm wondering what this, uh, you spoke a little while ago about uh, the about the vaccines, the vaccine development. Do we have any idea at all about when we will have a vaccine available? Hmm. Uh, Sally, that's a great question. I hear a lot of people asking that question. I also hear a lot of people talking with what seems like great authority about when vaccines might appear. I've heard people talk about there being a vaccine as early as fall, for instance, fall of 2020. Uh, Other people say it's at least a year off. Uh, Dr. Kilgore, give us some, some information here about what we should be thinking about when we think about how soon a vaccine might, might appear. So always a very difficult question to answer, but one of the things I can tell you is that with the number of vaccine candidates being evaluated, I think there's a pretty good likelihood that we're going to see some results that look promising within the, within the next year, for sure. One of the things that you should know is that when we evaluate a vaccine, we first test it in animals, and the best animal model that we have for COVID-19 is really a couple. One is the ferret animal model. And the other is a Syrian golden hamster. Hmm. In those animal models, we collect the data, make sure the vaccine's safe, and then we move on to perhaps a primate model and then quickly into humans. And when we go into human trials, we're talking about phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. Phase one and two are really looking at safety, making sure we don't hurt people, making sure people can tolerate it. It's not painful or uh, causing discomfort. We also look at the immune response in phase two. 
So phase two studies are very, very important because it tells us whether or not that vaccine is likely to provide protective antibody. And you may have heard in the news or heard me talk before about a key antibody called a neutralizing antibody. This is the kind of antibody that would stop the virus if we are exposed to it. And everyone really wants the neutralizing antibody to be elicited by a vaccine. The next step is that phase three trial. We call this in the uh, field the pivotal trial. So phase three trials are key to giving us that key answer about the vaccine effectiveness and efficacy. We do that because we combine two groups, or at least two groups in a phase three trial. One is the placebo group, and then the other is the treatment group, or the group getting the real vaccine. We are now moving into phase two trials with the Moderna vaccine. It was just announced. They're moving quickly into that. And then the Oxford vaccine that I mentioned earlier is moving um, soon into even phase two and three trials. And one of the technologies that we have now in clinical trial field is to move forward quickly through phase two into phase three. We call them sequential trials. And the rationale there is to speed up the evaluation of the drug or the vaccine. So that's what's happening right now with the vaccines. Because of the speed at which things are moving, literally they're going 24-7 working on these things, I think it's fair to say that in the next several months we're going to start seeing results. Mm. The phase three trial data are the most complicated to analyze and really require super rigorous designs and really careful analysis. So that's one of the things that we'll be looking for when we do these trials is to make sure the data are collected carefully, we follow up people carefully, that's very important, make sure people don't drop out, and we can actually then get good results on the antibody, the neutralizing antibody, and also their illness. Did they experience an illness after they got the vaccine uh, going forward a few months? And that requires of people in the trial to have some exposure to the coronavirus where they're living or where they're working. And so one of the reasons why we think about vaccines in different populations is that ultimately we're going to have to think about who gets the vaccine first. And logically, you can imagine the people that get the vaccine first, once it's deemed safe and ready for widespread use, is um, who's at risk. Mm. So healthcare workers, the elderly, people with underlying medical conditions, first responders, and other essential workers would be prioritized potentially in a scheme in which we're ramping up, scaling up distribution of a approved vaccine. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Paul Kilgore about COVID-19 and the way it is changing as we try to combat it. We want to continue to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Dr. Paul Kilgore. He's an associate professor and director of research 
at Wayne State University's College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. We are talking about how our understanding of the COVID-19 virus is changing, how it is rapidly changing as scientists scramble to figure out how to treat it, how to treat people who have contracted the disease, and eventually to reach the point of developing a vaccine that will prevent us from getting the disease. Uh, As always, we want to hear from you on the phones. What's your understanding of how all of this is working? Where are you getting information about coronavirus? Where are you getting information that you actually trust about coronavirus and the ways in which scientists are figuring out how it works and how it spreads and eventually how to treat it. Um, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Kilgore, I want to have you address another issue that I've heard a lot of people talking about, both in terms of... Uh, that say, that suggests uh, truth and information, and some that that uh, that seem to indulge fantasy. Talk about herd immunity, which is one of the concepts that that I know <clears throat> in science gets us to the point where where diseases don't have the same effect on the population uh, that they do maybe initially. But but tell us what that is, how it works, and whether we can have reasonable expectations that herd immunity will help save us from COVID-19. I'll start with giving one of the best examples of herd immunity or herd protection uh, that we know about, and that's in the case of measles. So we vaccinate against measles, and the goal of vaccination is to get two doses of the MMR vaccine into individuals, especially children, young people, so that we can protect them directly. So anyone who gets the vaccine is protected directly. There are always going to be people in the population who don't get a vaccine for one reason or another. And it is possible that if we vaccinate or have immunity in enough people in a given population, we can protect those people that are unimmune or susceptible to the infection. So the idea of herd protection is that some people are protected or vaccinated or have had the disease and therefore they're immune. And those individuals provide protection for those unimmune or vulnerable, susceptible people. When we vaccinate with a vaccine like measles, we get high levels of coverage in the population. For measles vaccine, we need about 80 to 85 percent coverage to start seeing herd protection. Hmm. And when we get to that level of vaccination, those remaining 25 or 15 percent of people that are not vaccinated will actually be experiencing some protection because of the herd immunity. Right. In the case of coronavirus, one of the challenges is as we learn about the immunity to coronavirus, we're trying to understand, number one, who has antibody in the population? Number two, how effective is that antibody in preventing future disease? And I spoke earlier about that neutralizing antibody that we all really want to have following infection or following vaccination. Mm -hmm. When we test for antibody, and you've heard uh, that there's many, many antibody tests available now, 
One of the things that we're not entirely sure of with these antibody tests is whether or not the antibody that we're detecting, especially the IgG antibody, is actually a key neutralizing antibody, or is it just um, another form of general IgG antibody that's detected with the test? We're starting to see more data from the research emerge showing us that these antibody tests are not only very sensitive, but they're specific for the SARS coronavirus 2 neutralizing IgG antibody. So that's good news. When studies have been done, and there's studies from California now in the population in New York City showing that a, a good proportion of the population in New York, for example, had antibody to SARS coronavirus. And that's something you might expect in a population where there's been high rates of disease. And we use the antibody test to understand general overall what we call seroprevalence. And that means looking at how many people in the population have the antibody. The more people that have antibody, potentially the greater the herd protection we will have for individuals that are not yet protected or not yet infected with the virus. Mm. So that's one of the goals of studying seroprevalence. That's one of the goals of vaccinating um, is really to get the highest level of herd protection and, and see where we are. That's why CDC and NIH are working hard now to do widespread antibody testing and look at different populations to get a sense of where we are with the overall seroprevalence and therefore begin to understand what where we are with herd protection because understanding the level of herd protection we have will actually guide the resumption of normal activities in many areas. Right. Uh, we've only got a, about a minute and a half left, but but some people seem to think that herd immunity means that <clears throat> um, essentially just trying to, to, to expose more people to the disease as a way of developing these these antibodies in other words that that the stay-at-home orders or the restrictions on on social interaction are somehow in conflict with the idea of developing herd immunity I wonder if you could quickly address that sure so you know there's a lot of examples of this uh, in history and also now but when we talk about exposing people to a virus, one of the challenges in doing that is that when people are exposed, depending on their underlying medical conditions and their current state of health, we just don't know what the virus is going to do. So in a highly um, health, uh, good uh, population with great health and people are doing really well, you can imagine, well, maybe it's okay to let people be exposed. But the reality is that we just can't predict what this virus is going to do. It's a very tricky virus. People may get mild illness or may be even asymptomatic with the infection, but we can't predict that. Right now, we don't have a way to really confidently predict that. So that's one of the reasons why reducing exposure is so important because it means that those people who are really vulnerable are going to be much less at risk to get very severe disease. So that's why protecting the elderly, watching people with underlying medical conditions is so important to prevent severe disease and having those people have to go to the hospital or even uh, die. Okay. Dr. Paul Kilgore, Associate Professor and Director of Research at Wayne State University's College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Always great to have you here to give this wonderful information to our listeners. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Stephen. Mm -hmm. 
That's going to do it for me this week. I'll be back on Monday, and I hope you will, too. We're going to talk then about health disparities playing out amid the pandemic with NAACP President Derek Johnson. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.